0: To learn who rules over you, simply find out and you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so it's time for the weekly visit of our good friend Dr Peter Hammond, so let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us?
1: I am, thank you Andrew.
0: Thank you Peter, and it should come as no surprise folks that being as this is Easter weekend coming up, the title of today's show is The Real Story of the Crucifixion. So Peter, where would you like to start us off today please?
1: Thank you, Andrew. Well, the Bible says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, all too often, the cross is seen as some kind of national flag of the church. But the cross was never meant to be the mere nostalgic symbol of a religious system. Neither is the cross exactly a signpost. Uh, The cross was not meant to just redirect our lives, but actually to end them. The cross was not an ornament, but an instrument of death. The cross was used by the Romans 2,000 years ago in the same way as people have used the gallows in our lifetime, the guillotine in France, the gas chamber in America, the electric chair in America, or the firing squad. The, The cross in the Bible is an instrument of death, yet out of it came life. It was meant to be the sign of a curse, but it has become a symbol of God's blessing. It should have signified defeat, yet through it, Christ achieved a triumphant victory. Christ turned that instrument of destruction into a means of salvation, something that signified torture into a symbol that brings much comfort to many. When the Apostle Paul summarized the essential basics of the good news, the gospel, he put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. The center of the Christian gospel is the cross. And the salvation that God wrought through the crucifixion of Christ is the greatest act of compassion and sacrifice and atonement in all the history of mankind. It is no wonder that the Apostle Paul said, when I came to you, my brothers, I made up my mind to forget everything except Jesus Christ, and especially his death on the cross. That's in 1 Corinthians 2. Now, although God did not have to save anyone, God didn't owe salvation to anyone. Salvation is an act of mercy or grace. You can think, for example, a person may be condemned to death for murder, justly condemned by a court of law, and they've had their day in court, and they may appeal to the sovereign for mercy, but they have no right to mercy. If they get mercy, if they get a commuted sentence, well, that's grace, that's undeserved favor. But if not, they get justice, they get what they deserve, and so there's no room for a condemned murderer to complain if they don't receive grace. God did not have to save anyone. But consequent upon the fact that God determined to save not just a few, not just some, but many, it was essential that it involved atonement. Because number one, God is holy and he cannot overlook sin. His justice must be maintained. God is light. God is holy. He is the eternal judge. And so Romans 3 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be the one who justifies the man who has faith in Jesus. That's Romans 3, 25 to 26. So God is holy and God cannot overlook sin. Number two, God's law is immutable. It cannot be changed. And his holy nature demands the punishment of sin. Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, God's curse on anyone who does not obey all of God's laws and teachings. It's a serious thing to violate the laws of the creator and the eternal judge. Number three, God had declared that the penalty for sin would be death. Ezekiel 18 4. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Romans 6, verse 23. For the wage of sin is death. Well, death is the one guaranteed minimum wage that Satan is able to see that his servants are paid. So the wage of sin is death. It's a fact. Number four, God taught his disciples that the atonement, the blood atoned on the cross, was necessary. So Luke 24, we've got this story about. Jesus walking along the road to Emmaus, speaking to his disciples who did not realize who they were talking to, and he says to them, these are the very things I told you about while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the writings of the prophets and the Psalms, had to come true. This is what is written. The Messiah must suffer and must rise from the death three days later. So our Lord taught that the atonement was necessary, that he had to suffer and that he would conquer death and that he would rise from dead three days later. Now to try and understand the crucifixion, which is so much at the heart of the Christian calendar, so much at the heart of the Christian gospel, so much at the heart of our message. Over the years, theologians have come up with different theories to explain what actually happened on the cross in the crucifixion. And Oregon, the great church father from North Africa, Oregon taught in the second century already the ransom theory. So the ransom theory maintained that through our sins, we were slaves of Satan, and Christ paid his life as a ransom to the devil to set us free. So the ransom theory was very popular in the third and fourth century onwards, that the crucifixion, the atonement of Christ, his blood shed in the cross at Calvary was actually a ransom to set us free. We were slaves of the devil and Christ has paid the price to set us free. In the Middle Ages, the great English theologian Anselm in the 11th century developed the idea of Christ voluntarily discharging man's obligation to God in order to satisfy God's honor, which had been offended. By our sin, You can imagine as in the time of the Knights, the Middle Ages, and the idea of honour and satisfaction was very strongly developed. And so it made sense to them to understand that Christ's death on the cross was very much along the line of like an honourable knight settling the honour of his master that he is serving. So uh, there's the satisfaction theory that Christ's bloodshed on the cross at Calvary was to satisfy our obligation to God, to discharge our obligation and to satisfy the honour of God, which had been offended by our sin. Abelard, in the 12th century, came up with the theory of the moral influence that Christ's birth and his suffering and his death reveals God's infinite love for mankind and awakens in us a reciprocal love and gratitude, which leads us back to God. So this is the moral influence theory. So- Sokinis, in the 16th century, held the view that Christ's death provided us with an example of unselfish martyrdom. And if we follow his teachings and his example, then our problems would be over. So that was another theory. Well, out of the Reformation came the government theory. Grotius saw that the Lord's death on the cross as the manifestation of God's divine justice, God's gracious pardon of offenders, had to be accompanied by some exhibition of the highest estimate that God set upon his law and the heinous guilt are violating it. And then John Calvin presented the penal substitutionary theory in the 16th century that the atonement was an act of redeeming love, whereby God took upon himself in Christ the judgment and the penalty of our sin and obtained for us pardon for our sin, pardon for all guilt and the free gift of righteousness before God through faith in Christ as our sin bearer. Now, of all these theories, with the exception of the last theory, they can may be considered inadequate to varying degrees. Because, yes, Christ, by his death on the cross, did give his life as a ransom for our sins. That's true. But he did not pay it to the devil. So the ransom theory uh, was mostly right, except uh, they initially got it wrong in that Christ was not paying this ransom to the devil. But he is actually settling our debt before holy God, the eternal judge. The reconciliation uh, theory of Anselm made sense in that Christ did make a full satisfaction for our sins, but God wasn't Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was the initiator. It was because he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And while yes, Christ's death does reveal his infinite love for his people and awaken in us a reciprocal love, but that's not the basis of our acceptance before holy God. We are not saved by love. We are saved by the blood atonement of Christ. And yes, Christ did provide us with a perfect example. Christ suffered for us and left us an example that we should follow in his footsteps, we read in 1 Peter 2.21. Uh, and even by his obedience, even unto the death on the cross, as Philippians 2 says. But we are saved by his vicarious sacrifices, sacrifices on our behalf, not by his example. So his example is important, but that's not the base of our salvation. It's his blood atonement, his sacrifice on the cross, that actually is what saves us. And so atonement is the key message. It's also true that although Christ's death on the cross overcame the world and disarmed the powers and the authorities and made a public spectacle of them and triumphed over them by the cross, Christ did destroy the work of the devil and he did set us free. But We are not only victims of Satan needing deliverance and liberation. We're also guilty sinners needing forgiveness and atonement. As it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. Not one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as we read in Romans 3. So all people are guilty sinners. All people abide under the wrath of God, the anger of God. All people alienated from God and in bondage to sin and Satan. But all of these problems were solved by Christ through his death on the cross of Calvary. And by Christ's perfect obedience to the whole moral law and to all the commands of God, he fulfilled the just requirements of a holy God. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I trust my whole eternity. And so he fulfilled the just requirements of a holy God. And in his obedience to God's will, Christ submitted to the penal sanctions or the legal um, penalties of the law. He died the death we deserve to die. He suffered the death that we deserved. And he willingly endured all these sufferings for the sake of his people. So there are four New Testament words in Greek which express distinct facets of the salvation we receive in Christ. So when we speak about the cross of Christ, or we speak about the blood of Christ, this is shorthand for the theological understanding of atonement. And the four great words in the New Testament translated into English, that sum up what was achieved through the crucifixion is sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. Sacrifice. Throughout the Old Testament, redemption is connected with the shedding of blood and with a form of substitution. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, some animal died that skin could be used to cover their nakedness. When Abel killed the firstborn of his flock as a sacrifice, he symbolized several important truths. Sin must be judged. A price must be paid for sin. The innocent die for the guilty, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. When Abraham was instructed to sacrifice his only son, God provided a substitute to die in place of Isaac. God himself will provide the lamb and this was shed at the time when God would show his love for us by sending his own beloved son as a sacrifice to die in our place for our sins. And so at the Passover, God delivered his people from both the bondage of slavery and from the danger of death through the shed blood of the sacrificial lambs. And in this powerful picture of God's redemption of his people, we can see a type of the Lamb of God. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed, as we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And in order to deliver us from the bondage of sin, from the sentence of death, the prophet Isaiah described in detail the future sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the transgression of my people he was stricken, and the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And so the New Testament era begins when John the Baptist points to Christ, and proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is our sin offering. He is our atonement. When Christ, the perfect Son of God, a lamb without spot or blemish, shed his precious blood on the cross, it was a substitutionary death. He died for us in our place, the innocent for the guilty, the just in the place of the unjust. Shortly after my conversion 45 years ago, I wrote this poem, he became like us that we might become like him. He was rejected that we might be accepted. He was condemned that we might be forgiven. He was punished that we might be pardoned. He suffered that we might be strengthened. He was whipped that we might be healed. He was hated that we might be loved. He was crucified that we might be justified. He was tortured that we might be comforted. He died that we might live. He went to hell, that we might go to heaven. He endured what we deserve, that we might enjoy, what only he deserves. So that's the first word, sacrifice. And the second word is propitiation, which many people would um, say, well, I don't recognize that word. Well, while the sacrifice aspect of Christ's work on the cross deals with guilt, this aspect of propitiation refers to Christ's covering of our sin in order to remove the divine wrath or anger of God, which our sin evokes. God's wrath, God's anger, is that holy revulsion of the triune God against all sin and all evil. And Christ's propitiation or atoning sacrifice is none other than God himself taking upon his own holy and eternal heart the implications of his own wrath. He is the propitiation for our sins, we read in 1 John 2 verse 2. 1 John 14 says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 14. So through his death on the cross, Christ removed the wrath of God, the anger of God, which was abiding over us, by covering over our sins and by removing our guilt, Christ saved us from God's wrath. So that's propitiation, sacrifice and propitiation. And the third key word is reconciliation. Reconciliation means the abolition of enmity or hostility between two parties who've quarreled. And so we read in the scriptures in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's Romans 5, 8 to 11. So on the cross, Christ's love dealt sacrificially with implications of our sin, and he gave us peace with God. Romans 5, 1, peace with God. Colossians 1, verse 19-20 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this is the real story of the crucifixion. Reconciliation is God's word. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Our sin had made us enemies of God. And it was necessary that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, should make peace between us, between us and God, by dealing with the cause of the enmity, the cause of the hostility, which is our sin. And he dealt with it on the cross. The fourth word is redemption. Redemption is the language of purchase and ransom. Because of our bondage to sin, Christ died to set us free. Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is the price paid in order to secure a release. A sinner has been bound to the law of sin and death. But Christ redeemed us from the cursed law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the necessity of keeping the law as a condition of acceptance before God. For just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Christ, the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. That's in Romans 5.19. So our redemption from sin actually embraces several aspects. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. There's the past tense, the present continuous tense, and there's the future tense of our salvation. Past tense, justification. We were redeemed from the penalty of our sins. This deals with the guilt. We are fully forgiven for our sins. Sanctification. This is the present continuous tense. We are being redeemed from the power of sin, and this deals with our nature. We are being progressively delivered from our sin. So justification deals with our sins, our actions, our guilt. Sanctification deals with our nature, where we are progressively daily being redeemed, changed, transformed by the grace of God, by the word of God. And then there's the future tense of our salvation, which is glorification. The day will come when we shall be redeemed even from the presence of all sin. We will be eternally freed from sin. And so justification is a legal term speaking about the past tense of our guilt, dealing with the penalty of our sin. Sanctification is a present continuous tense of our adventure of the south trip as we are being changed and transformed as we respond to the word of God in obedience and faith. And glorification is the future tense when it's speaking about the presence of sin. So justification deals with the penalty of sin. Sanctification deals with the power of sin. Glorification deals with the presence of sin. And so in a real sense, we can say, through the crucifixion of Christ, I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. Titus 2 verse 13 says, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. God, our Savior, wants all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all men. That's 1 Timothy 2 verse 46. And so we read that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And for this reason, at the last day, on the day of judgment, we will hear the song of the redeemed, Revelation 5 reports. As all the redeemed of God will be singing, you are worthy because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this is what we mean when we speak about the crucifixion. The crucifixion, in one sense, in a human sense, is an ugly, ghastly, terrible, torturous, horrible way to die, a humiliating criminal's death, a torture that was devised by the Romans to strike terror and fear into any of their enemies. And the fact that Christ was crucified on a Roman cross uh, gives us historical insights. And when we look at who's responsible for the sufferings of Christ, well, obviously the Roman soldiers crucified him, but they were just obeying orders. But the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, he alone had the power to enforce the death penalty in Galilee and in Judea, It was he who, as a magistrate the Roman Empire, declared, I found no fault in him. I found no fault in him. I found no fault in this man concerning these things of which you accuse him. And so three times he declared Christ not guilty. Yet Pontius Pilate, as the supreme Roman magistrate in the land, bowed to political pressure and condemned an innocent man to death for political expediency and for popularity. There's a meaningless gesture for the Roman governor to publicly wash his hands and Declare, I'm innocent of the blood of this just man, you see it to it. How hypocritical. He was the Roman governor, and as the highest magistrate land he had declared, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did King Herod, for I sent him He sent him back to you, and did nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And Proverbs 17, 15 says, he who justifies the wicked, or he who condemns the just, both of them alike, like an abomination to God. It's a terrible, abominable thing for governors or magistrates to condemn the just or to justify the wicked. But Pontius Pilate was not doing this in a vacuum. He actually was trying to get out of it. Coward though he was, uh, nevertheless, it was the mob of people in the streets, the ones who were pressurizing Pontius Pilate to condemn the Lord to death. We have no king but Caesar, they cried. Release Barabbas, they cried. Who's Barabbas? Well, he's a terrorist. He's a murderer. He's in prison and about to be crucified for having murdered a Roman soldier, or more than one, in the rebellion. And the mob, the crowd, screamed crucify him, crucify him. His blood be upon us and upon our children. I mean, imagine this. Here is this mob of Jewish people in the streets of Jerusalem, many of whom may have been part of the uh, Hosanna Palm Sunday, welcoming Christ into Jerusalem, waving palm fronds and spreading their cloaks, perform saying Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Highest. Many of that crowd may have been amongst the people that Jesus fed when he multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed thousands. Some of them may have had family or relatives and friends healed by Christ, and yet this mob went from hail him to nail him in a matter of few days. From from Hosanna to crucify him in literally a matter of days. How fickle can the mob be? But it was the Jewish religious leaders who initiated the arrest and the trial of Christ. It was the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin who incited the mob to scream for Barabbas the terrorist to be released and for Christ to be crucified. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels who had committed murder and rebellion But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that Jesus be crucified. And the voices of these men and the chief priests prevailed. So that Pontius Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released them the one they had requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown to prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. The law of God tells us in Exodus 23, you shall not follow a crowd to the evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside many to pervert justice. And of course, when you think of who's responsible for the death of Christ, we've also got to consider Judas, the ultimate traitor, one of the 12 who betrayed Christ for mere silver. Judas had been one of the Lord's trusted 12 disciples, the treasurer who became a traitor, the apostle who became an apostate, a man who could kiss the door to heaven and yet be flung into hell within literally a few hours. The Bible is very clear that Judas was greedy, treacherous, dishonest, hypocritical. And the Bible clearly states Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ. Judas asked the chief priest, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? the Bible records that the chief priests were delighted at Judas's treachery. And although Judas was the treasurer of the 12, and although he feigned concern for the poor, the Bible reveals that in fact Judas was a thief, stealing from the funds of the Lord himself. So far from Judas being a well-meaning victim of circumstances, the Bible is quite clear that he was a malicious traitor. John's gospel plainly states, then Satan entered into Judas. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. And so, There's no doubt on a human, historical, factual basis, the Roman soldiers and Pontius Pilate bear guilt for the crucifixion of Christ, and even more so the mob of people in the streets of Jerusalem and the Jewish religious leaders who conspired for this, and Judas, the traitor. But on another level, was it not God's will that Christ suffer and die on the cross? Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord prayed, Father, If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so we also need to recognize that our Lord Jesus was not a martyr. He was not a victim. He was a willing sacrifice. He he could have called on 10,000 legions of angels to deliver him. He could have destroyed Jerusalem with a word. He could have obliterated both Judea and the Roman Empire uh, at his command. He had that power. However, our Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily laid down his own life. Our Lord declared, I lay down my life for my sheep. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. That's in John 10. Our Lord Jesus was not a victim or a martyr. He was a willing sacrifice, an atonement for our sins, a propitiation to reconcile us to God. So in the final analysis, as we consider the real story of the crucifixion, we've got to ask, was it not your sin and my sin? that was responsible for the sufferings and the atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before cheer is a sound, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. But who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And he bore the sin of many. And he made intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. He is our sin offering. He is our atonement. Christ, the perfect son of God, a lamb without spot, or blemish, shed his precious blood on the cross of Calvary as a substitutionary sacrifice. He died for us in our place, the innocent for the guilty, the just in the place of the unjust. God is a holy God, and his righteous standards are seen in his law. We are sinful, and we need to repent of our wickedness and place our trust in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so we need to acknowledge our sinfulness and our failings before Almighty God. And we need to thank him for dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus died for you. And so the key question we need to ask at this Easter season, this Holy Week, is are you living for him? Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And um, can you give people a rundown of, of, you know, just... A lot of people listening, they're they're not necessarily aware of how they should conduct themselves. We've got, obviously, Good Friday, then we've got Easter Sunday, then we've got the Monday. You have a ministry. What will you be doing during this Easter period so people know what they can be doing and can they even go online and and, and follow your services? Uh, Back to you.
1: Yes, indeed. So uh, we will be placing up quite a few different things on our Frontline Mission essay.org website and my Bible studies and sermons on LivingstonFellowship.co.za. So, if uh, Livingston Fellowship is the church congregation, church plant, Bible study, um, and services which which I run are put on LivingstonFellowship.co.za, and so we have a Good Friday service. In fact, we will be having a a, a Good Friday evening service followed by supper. And uh, the night before, which of course is key because the sufferings of Christ really start on the Thursday night leading into that, uh, we've got a Reformation signing meeting where we will be looking at the trial of Christ, the illegal trial of Christ, and the worst travesty of justice in history and the greatest crime in history, which we've looked at before on, on previous ACH shows. Uh, so that'll be this Thursday night. And on on Easter weekend, of course, the highlight in many ways is Resurrection Sunday, uh, when we also have a special service and celebrate the Lord's Supper, which I think is one of the most important days in the entire Christian calendar, as we consider the victory of Christ over hell, death, Satan, and the grave, and his resurrection from the dead, and so Resurrection Sunday is super important and and certainly the most important uh, date in any Christian calendar. In order to focus uh, the thoughts of our family over, over uh, this long weekend. In our family, we have several key traditions. One of them is uh, listening to Handel's Messiah. And I think Handel's Messiah is one of the greatest achievements in music ever produced. In fact, if we want to know what heaven sounds like, I can't think of a better uh, example that we know of on earth than Handel's Messiah, which is all scripture uh, produced uh, uh, in the most magnificent way. And so, in fact, both my... Daughter Danielle and my wife Lenora many times sang Handel's Messiah as part of the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra, and uh, even in St. George's Cathedral and in the Dutch form Mother Church. Uh, my family's had great joy of many times attending. Also, the oldest Protestant church in the Southern Hemisphere, in Strand Street Lutheran Church, we've often had um, my wife's uh, Cape Town Symphony choir singing in uh, Strand Street Lutheran Church, Handel's Messiah. So Handel's Messiah, whether you find it online or listen to it, or if you know of a um, a church or uh, city hall, which is having a performance of Handel's Messiah, I think that's one of the best things you could do during an Easter uh, weekend. And in our family also, we often tend to uh, watch the Ben-Hur film. Ben-Hur, which is such a God-honoring film, and where all the problems and conflicts in the film are resolved in the crucifixion of Christ. That's that's a really great God-honoring uh, film, uh, very well made, uh, back when it meant something, winning more awards than any other uh, film in history. Ben Hurz is a gra- great book, great audio book, great film uh, to watch. Also, The Passion of the Christ, it's hard, but um, I think The Passion of the Christ film produced by Mel Gibson, is so important for people to see at least once in their life. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to face a realistic presentation of what the crucifixion involved, and most films in Life of Christ are unfortunately sanitized, and uh, for human um, sensibilities, uh, they, they sanitize the sufferings of Christ and the crucifixion, whereas Mel Gibson tried to be more realistic in accordance with what the Bible says and what was involved in the Roman crucifixion. So the, the Passion of the Christ is is well worth seeing. There's another film that came out a few years ago, which is well worth seeing, and that's Risen. Um, Risen is superb, um, film to watch over this season if you haven't seen it. And then there's also The Case for Christ. There's the dramatic film, The Case for Christ, uh, about one skeptical, cynical Chicago journalist whose wife gets converted and he goes on an um, investigation to try and disprove the resurrection and uh, thereby, win his wife back from Christ, back to atheism, and all the evidence um, points him to the truth of the resurrection. And it's it's a powerful true form, uh, true story. So that that uh, the case for Christ is outstanding. Other books that I've found have been really meaningful over the years has been Who Moved the Stone? Uh, by Frank Morrison, also sceptical person, trying to disprove the resurrection. It got converted through the evidence, and that. Uh, Frank Morrison was a lawyer. I remember reading that book in a matter of just a few days. It was just so gripping. And the evidence that demands a verdict, which is absolutely phenomenal, um, that's Josh McDowell's investigation. He's a skeptical, cynical, secular um, lecturer at university who was challenged by one of his students. That, um, has he investigated the evidence for the resurrection? And so he investigates it in order to disprove Christianity and ends up being converted to Christ, and he puts that results and evidence of mild suicide. So these are some of the resources. Now, I've produced um, presentations such as on, and you can find the videos or audios on our Frontline Mission essay.org website and livingstonfellowship.co.za website, where you can either see the text or the audio, or watch PowerPoint or, or the video on uh, who killed Christ and the greatest crime in history, the worst crime in history, uh, on the uh, evidence for the resurrection, uh, these sort of important uh, presentations, which I think would help and would uh, focus our thoughts in a really God-honoring, constructive way during this Easter season. You can be sure that the world's going to try and distract us. They've got all sorts of distractions. Um, You know, the COVID cults, of course, and uh, the war drums over Ukraine and Russia, and uh, uh, they'll bring up other things, Easter bunnies and so on. Uh, But the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so I think it's so important that we adhere to a Christian calendar, no matter what our government and secular society outside does. And don't let Hollywood distract and derail us from what is most important. I think it's so important that we focus on Good Friday on as the most serious, solemn day of mourning over our sins and reflecting on the sufferings of Christ and that we focus our mind on what Christ suffered for us. And so... Uh, I would I would say uh, if if you do one thing on this Good Friday, uh, of course, go to a church service of a God-honoring Bible-believing church near you if you can, or watch a God-honoring sermon on the crucifixion. And uh, if you can watch a film like The Passion of the Christ or Ben-Hur, that would be super valuable. And as far as the Saturday goes, perhaps uh, going through Handel's Star, Ben-Hur, and uh, the evidence for the resurrection, the case for Christ. And on Resurrection Sunday, well, Handel's Messiah, uh, celebrating the resurrection, and uh, the film Risen, uh, these would be some very positive media that you could imbibe in order to just entrench in your family and your life um, some of the significance and importance of this great holy weekend. And uh, so from Good Friday through Easter Sunday, I think it's so important that we... We ignore all the world's distractions and focus on that, which is of most importance. Thank you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And of course, we know that they want to distract us in as many ways as possible. Uh, just a little update. Uh, you're probably aware that there is a Passion of the Christ, Christ sequel uh, in the works with um, Mel Gibson at the helm again and the same actor playing Christ, Jim Cazaville. Um I've just looked into that. It's still sketchy when the release date's going to be. Some people have speculated that there's a book coming out in July, I think, of next year, 2023, that's uh, related to this film, and that the film could appear around the same sort of time, but there's very little information on it. However, I thought it would be worth um, going to Wikipedia, because Wikipedia, we know, (laughs) is very censored and what have you, but it's always good to see what the mainstream are putting out, and that's the area that they go to. So in the Passion of the Christ Wikipedia page, I found this quite interesting. Um, Under the heading, Allegations of Anti-Semitism. Before the film was released, there were prominent criticisms of perceived anti-Semitic content in the film. It was for that reason that 20th Century Fox decided to pass on the film, informing New York Assemblyman Don Hickind, that a protest outside the News Corporation building made them decide against distributing the film. Hickind warned other companies that they should not distribute this film. This is unhealthy for Jews all over the world. A joint committee of the Secretariat for Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and the Department of Interreligious Affairs of the Anti Defamation League obtained a version of the script before it was released in theatres. They released a statement calling it one of the most troublesome texts relative to anti-Semitic potential that any of us had seen in 25 years. It must be emphasised that the main storyline presented Jesus as having been relentlessly pursued by an evil cabal of Jews, headed by the high priest Caiaphas, who finally blackmailed a weak-kneed pilot into putting Jesus to death. This is precisely the storyline that fuelled centuries of anti-Semitism within Christian societies. This is also a storyline rejected by the Roman Catholic Church at Vatican II in its document Nostra Aetate, and we all know who was involved in Vatican II, and by nearly all mainline Protestant churches in parallel documents. Unless this basic storyline has been altered by Mr Gibson, a fringe Catholic who is building his own church in the Los Angeles area and who apparently accepts neither the teachings of Vatican II nor modern biblical scholarship, the Passion of the Christ retains a real potential for undermining the repudiation of classical Christian anti-Semitism by the churches in the last 40 years. Sir Peter what are your thoughts on why we had a vatican too who were the people who went into these churches you spoke about the world council of churches before who infiltrated these to basically try to absolve jews of the death of jesus christ
1: you know honestly who cares what these blighters of hollywood say hollywood has made blasphemy a major industry Uh, Back when Hollywood began, most of America was God-fearing and um, church-going, and young people were brought up moral and uh, in two-parent homes and things like this. You know, even divorce was considered um, unacceptable, and uh, uh, adultery was a crime, uh, a civil crime that you could go to jail for. And Hollywood has popularized blasphemy, immorality, perversion, and they are so vile, and their hostility to Christ is evident in the fact that you can produce any kind of scum, porno, perversion, even The Last Temptation of Christ, the most blasphemous form ever produced. And that's not a problem. But Mel Gibson tries to honestly produce a form that is God-honoring, which is accurate, which is honest, which is biblical and faithful. And uh, they went berserk. They went off the rails. They boycotted him on every which way. Not only would no studio take it, but None of the uh, many chain, uh, cinema chains like AMC and so on, which is owned by Hollywood film producers, uh, would take his film either. And so at Mel Gibson, at every kind of opposition against him, as they would not advertise, they would not promote, they would not screen in their cinemas, they They not only blacklisted and blackballed him, they boycotted him, they they did everything they could, economic warfare to destroy his film, and yet The Passion of the Christ became one of the 10 most commercially successful films in all of history. A phenomenal success, which Mel Gibson took the personal risk all upon himself, and a people turned out in droves to support the film, which just shows Hollywood does not represent the average people on the ground. And when a good film like The Passion comes out, people support it. In Cape Town, we had front page of our newspapers telling people not to support this anti-Semitic film, and it was super successful. And I might say, as a as a missionary to the Muslim world, I found uh, the um, anti-Semitism charge awfully positive and successful and helpful uh, because Muslims all over the world want to see this film. And so uh, we found with the coming out of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ film, we suddenly find Muslims everywhere want to see. And we were taking the the Jesus film and ministering in many of these places where the Jesus film was completely illegal and banned and we could get into trouble. And in fact, there were people like Heather Mercia and Donna Curry, two American missionaries, uh, who were arrested in Afghanistan and given the death sentence for showing the Jesus form uh, in Afghanistan on a laptop to four Muslims. Uh, and now out comes the Passion, and it's not banned anywhere. In fact, it was being sold in, uh, and shown in cineplexes in, in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. So we were able to show the Passion of the Christ openly throughout the Muslim Middle East, no problem, Sudan and so on. And the people were ecstatic, thrilled, Egypt, no. As, and why? because they heard from Hollywood and uh, from the lamestream media that this film was anti-Semitic, and so suddenly the entire Muslim world wanted to see this film. So The Passion of the Christ was successful on so many levels, including on a missionary level, and we found it opened the door for sharing the gospel amongst the Muslim world because the Muslim world knows that Uh, well, Hollywood (laughs) represents the enemies and um, uh, they hate and despise the vile filth and blasphemy that comes out of them. So interesting how Muslims who often have been our opponents became our friends and allies when it came to this film. So the passion of the Christ is being true to the scripture. In fact, the words used come straight from the Bible, like, you know, his blood be upon us and upon our children. That's from the scripture. They said that they said, release Barabbas, crucify Christ, and so on. And you'd no friend of Caesar if you let this man go. And this is from the Bible. So when people are angry about these aspects in the film, it not it interesting they can tolerate any kind of pornographic perversion and blasphemy in films? But the moment you have something that's Christ-honoring, well, then they throw their toys out of the cot and they have a total fit and hysteria and start screaming hate speech and all the rest of it. Well, here we're getting facts, and these facts are extremely helpful because it again reminds us who persecutes the church and who doesn't. So back to your key question. Back already in 1920, the comintern, the Communist International, made as a high priority, their number one international priority, to infiltrate Hollywood, and to infiltrate Hollywood for the Communist Party. In fact, it was testified that for many years the Communist Party was the only party in town, talking about Hollywoodland and. Near Los Angeles, where where literally the the um, Hollywood was infiltrated by the communists, to such a point that they've controlled Hollywood from the beginning, and uh, sometimes it's been more blatant than others. And of course, the Hayes Commission and the the uh, Code of uh, Motion Picture Code uh, did restrict how bad they could go overtly for many years, and that was abandoned in the 1960s, and then it was no holds barred. And today, you can see exactly where Hollywood stands. There are not only anti-God, anti-Christ, the anti-family, the anti, uh, even traditional male and female roles, they're, they're just perverse. So uh, the, the Marxists chose to infiltrate Hollywood. And we see that. But at the same common turn back in 1920, the decision was made to infiltrate the Catholic Church. Well, they wanted to infiltrate all churches, but they found, look, the Methodists were easy to infiltrate and they got them and controlled them very soon. The Catholics were harder. Because the Catholics had this um, principle of celibate priesthood. Uh, Priests aren't allowed to get married. And so, well, how do they infiltrate them? And the Marxists came up with the idea at this time, the Bolsheviks in the Soviet Union, well, we could infiltrate the Catholic Church by mobilizing our homosexual supporters into the priesthood. You know, for them, it won't be a great sacrifice. In fact, they'll then have choir boys to predator on. And this is a win-win for the Marxists. And it's documented, and I've actually done a whole study on, on how the uh, how the Marxists deliberately infiltrated the R- Roman Catholic Church with their um, predator, pedophile, um, child-abusing characters and, and homosexual Marxists. And this was a win-win on two sides. On the one side, a what they often call a Marxist homosexual mafia has managed to seize full control of the Vatican, which is seen, of course, in a lot of what came out of Vatican II. And... The the whole um, Roman Catholic Church has been discredited worldwide through the stories of rampant sexual abuse, which is in many cases not so much a church scandal as a homosexual scandal, but it's been distorted as being a church scandal and ignoring the h- deliberate policy of the Soviets to infiltrate the Roman Catholic Church with their homosexual Marxist members. Because... It's a win-win. You discredit the church and at the same time, you also gain control of a huge amount of real estate and wealth and power and influence and pulpits and all the rest. So, yes, um, who's behind all this? The usual suspects, the Bolsheviks, the perpetrators, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. You can tell that the world's media is in the hands of the perpetrators, how they never talk about the millions of Christians slaughtered by these Bolsheviks. And we can also tell that they're in the hands of the perpetrators by their own agenda. And so, yes, both Hollywood and the Roman Catholic Church were targeted for infiltration at the very beginning of the Soviet Union, and we can see the fruit at this time. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And the other thing that I think is worth mentioning before we go, I'm on a website called beliefnet.com, and uh, it says... Mel Gibson has reportedly dropped from his forthcoming film, The Passion of the Christ, so this is an old article, what have been called the most inflammatory words in the New Testament. This cut has been hailed as a victory for Jews who worry about the impact of the film. Is it really something to celebrate? Critics contend that the excised verse, Matthew 27 Chapter 27, verse 25, in which the Jews appear to assume upon themselves eternal guilt for Jesus' death, stirred up anti-Semitic bloodshed in previous centuries. So it's interesting how there was pressure put on that this verse not be included, isn't it, Peter?
1: That's correct. Now, the verse was included. Um, It was the subtitle that was removed. So uh, you still hear uh, the people shouting out in Latin, his blood be upon us and upon our children, but the English text is is removed. So they just uh, took out the the translation um, uh, for the people who didn't understand Latin. So, yes, it's still got his blood be upon us and upon our children in the film, but not in the English subtext. And that was as a result of incredible, enormous pressure. What a shame to think that there's censorship like that. When I grew up, the Liberals were all screaming that censorship is wrong, evil, inherently wrong, unjustifiable. You mustn't have any censorship. But once the Liberal left gained control, now suddenly they start to bring in all kinds of censorship, but they just changed the name to hate speech. Well, (laughs) truth is hate to those who hate the truth. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And that brings us to the end of our broadcast today so before we go can you please uh, obviously you mentioned the Livingston fellowship website folks this isn't one that peter talks about so much because he directs you uh to the frontline fellowship website as his main site but that i have a direct link in the post for all our shows to that and some of peter's other websites so please have a look at them and that's where to go to the Livingston Fellowship the Livingston website, sorry, uh, this weekend for the, the the sermons and what have you that Peter mentioned. So before we go, please let the audience know about the websites that they should go to at this time of year and also how they can contact you.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew. Yes, my Bible studies and sermons, including audio and video, are on www.livingstonfellowship.co.za livingstonfellowship.co.za uh, and our main mission website is frontlinemissionessay.org we are celebrating at the moment 45 years since I was converted, 40 years since Frontline Fellowship launched its first mission across the border. We've just brought out a book, Frontline, Behind the Lines for Christ, which is also available on Prince on Demand. And thank you, Andrew, for putting us in touch with uh, Lulu for uh, the um, print on Demand option so that people can obtain it wherever they are. Thank you, Andrew. God bless, and may you thoroughly enjoy a God-honoring, Christ-centered Easter weekend.
0: Thank you so much, Peter. God bless also you and all at Frontline Fellowship and all of our wonderful audience. Folks, you have been listening to The Real Story of the Crucifixion. I want to thank Peter for joining me today. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day, a wonderful Easter, and bye for now.